You're listening to Capturing Christianity, a ministry aimed at exposing the intellectual side of Christian belief. Do things begin to exist? Well, if you're a muriological nihilist, the answer is probably no. In this episode, we discuss muriological nihilism and whether or not it is a problem for the Kalam cosmological argument's premise that the universe began to exist. Can anything begin to exist? Let's listen in and learn on this episode of Capturing Christianity. I'm Cameron Bertuzzi. Welcome to Capturing Christianity. Today we're talking about a very, we're focusing in on an, a very interesting topic, actually. So it's related to the Kalam cosmological argument, which is one of the arguments for the existence of God. I was, I was just thinking about how many arguments there are for God's existence. There are a ton. Uh, but this one is called the Kalam cosmological argument, and it includes a premise uh, that goes everything that begins to exist has a cause, at least in the uh, the most popular forms of the argument by uh, popularized by Dr. William Lane Craig and others. So it, it has this sort of causal principle. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. And there is this very interesting, philosophically interesting objection that's being raised more and more frequently these days. I see it on Facebook all over the place. It's on YouTube. It's in uh, different um interviews that you see on YouTube and everything from from atheists. We'll even play a clip of one in, in today's stream. But it's an it's an objection from something called muriological nihilism, and that's a big fancy term. Muriology is basically the the study of parts and wholes relations. And I've got an expert in muriology joining me today to discuss this objection. It's really, like I said, it's a very interesting objection. The argument itself is interesting enough. But so let me go ahead and bring in my guest. My guest is Dr. Justin Mooney. He's been on the show uh, a, a number of times before. I can't remember all of the, the the different shows that you've been on for. I think we've done like maybe just a, a random Q and A. I mean, this is this was like years ago. I'm thinking of the first time that you were on. But one of my one of my favorite shows that we've done together was on your deontological approach to the problem of evil, which is super fascinating. The problem of evil is is a topic that I, I keep coming back to as someone who's interested in arguments for and against uh, against the existence of God. But in any case, Dr. Mooney, Justin, it's great to have you back. I'm I'm really excited to to talk about this. Yeah, great. Um, thanks for having me back. I'm excited to be here. It has been a little while since I've been on. I- I had a dissertation to finish last year, so kept yeah. me busy. Well, well, we've got um, some really interesting stuff lined up for today's show, so I'm really excited to to get into it. But Justin, is, is there anything that we'd like to, or that you would like to sort of uh, say at the very beginning of this to kind of help set up maybe what the objection is, flesh out some of the details so we can understand like really what's, what's kind of going on here? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I'll say a little bit more, uh, add a little bit to what you were saying about the Kalam, just so it's clear. What is the argument here and what? It, why is it important, right? So it's like you said, it's this popular argument for the existence of God, basically tries to show that um, there's got to be some kind of cause of the universe, some reason why the universe came into existence, and that cause it has at least some of the attributes that are traditionally attributed to God. Um, but it relies, as you said, on this principle that says everything that begins to exist has a cause. And uh, Craig, uh, William Lane Craig, who is like kind of the main defender of these ar- of this argument, um, gives, I think, three different arguments for that premise. Um, and we're just going to talk about one of them. Um, Correct. Yeah. So so there's a lot. I mean, it's a, the Kalam argument, huge subject. Lots of different stuff to talk about. Um, and I actually, I mean, to be honest, I'm not persuaded at this point that Craig's version of the argument is successful. Um, but I do have some things to say about the particular objection we're going to talk about today. I, I am not persuaded by this objection. So anyway. Yeah, you have other thoughts on, on the argument, which which is uh, something I love. I mean, I, I love 
for people to, to think for themselves and, and think through these arguments and, and, and not just accept an argument just because it leads to a conclusion that you may want to be true. A anyways, um, yeah, so help us flesh out. I, I guess what, what we could do is just go to the clip. We have a clip lined up with Alex O'Connor. He actually kind of lays out this objection in a conversation with William Lane Craig that he had on his channel. Alex O'Connor's uh, more, more well-known as Cosmic Skeptic. And he uh, he had a conversation with Dr. William William Lane Craig two and a half years ago, I think, somewhere around there. And he raises this objection at about the 43 minute mark. So let's go ahead and play that clip. It's only a minute long, and then we'll kind of get your thoughts on that, Justin. So here we, here we go. Here's the, here's the clip. A lot of the time, people will say. Now I, I'm not sure if this is an argument you would make, but this is what my article was on. My essay was on about the the begging the question of the Kalam. Now. Yes, Some right. people have said, now when you refer to common experience, I thought you might have meant something like, anytime we see something beginning to exist, it appears to have a cause. Uh, that's a common experience that a lot of people will refer to. They say, look, you, you can never have something that begins to exist, me beginning to exist, uh, a chair beginning to exist that doesn't have a cause. But of course, the important point here for me was that the kind of beginning to exist we need to talk about uh, in order for the Kalam to hold, in order to get our conclusion, is beginning to exist from nothing, surely. Whereas mm -hmm. a chair doesn't begin to exist from nothing. A chair begins to exist from pre-existing material. And yes, although it makes sense to say the chair exists now and didn't exist an hour ago, what we really mean is that the material that the chair is made out of has rearranged itself or been rearranged in such a way that we now arbitrarily give it the, na the label of a chair, but, but nothing has actually begun to exist. Yeah, so that is the clip, and again, this is this is a very common objection. I'm seeing it more and more that some people. I mean, there there was this one uh, atheist. I can't remember the the name that they went by on Facebook, but they were saying that they, they even denied that. Uh, no, they they didn't deny that they exist. Rather, what they denied is that they didn't exist during the Jurassic period. So he yeah. he did not. Yeah, I asked him. So if you think that nothing begins to exist, then you know, you, you obviously exist now. So where were you during the Jurassic period? And so his, his response was that I existed, but I just existed all over the place. Maybe something it's a very odd and strange uh, view, but uh, it's, it's something that that's popping up more and more often. And so I, I thought it'd be helpful to kind of just get a, a professional's thoughts uh, on this. So, so Justin, help us begin to really understand what this objection is and maybe some, uh, some different ways to, to think deeper about it. Yeah. Okay. So, um, uh, so that premise in Craig's argument that says everything that begins to exist has a cause. One of his ways of motivating that premise is to say, Hey, you know, look around whenever you see something coming into existence, there's something that caused it to come into existence. And so this is a kind of non-deductive argument for thinking, Oh, well then the universe will be like that too. If it started to exist then it was caused to come into existence by something. And then from there, you know, we, what, what is that something? Is it God? Whatever. But the objection here, or at least one version of it, says, well, it's not really true that we can look around and see things coming into existence all the time and then notice, oh, whenever that happens, they have a cause. Um, and the reason why that's supposedly not really true is because Ordinary material things, according to this objection, don't ever come into existence. Uh, rather, uh, they, they don't really ever exist at all. What you have instead are just uh, what are called muriological simples. And muriological simples are just objects that have no parts. Uh, or in the, in the technical language of metaphysics, we'd say they have no proper parts. Um, but so, okay, so suppose you think that there are only muriological symbols. Well, muriological symbols, you know, they would, these would be something like particles or strings or, you know, whatever the fundamental quarks. things are, that, yeah, quarks or whatever, that the material universe is made out of, right? And so what, the, um, what this view is saying is that there aren't ordinary objects like people and hippos and chairs and cars. There are just muriological symbols or particles or atoms or whatever you want to call them arranged as if there were things like that. And mm -hmm. then we talk as though there were things like that 
because that's convenient or useful or maybe ingrained in our thinking by evolution or something like that. But it's not really true. What's really true is just that there are swarms of simples in various arrangements. Um, okay. Various geometric so, shapes. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's the objection. And I mean, it's an interesting objection, and I think it is a, a serious objection. So Craig is, I think, maybe more dismissive of this objection than I am. Uh, he, you know, the the video with, um, we just played the clip from, you know, if you keep listening to it, they, they uh, Craig and, and Alex talk for a while about this objection, and Craig mm -hmm. at a couple of points says some pretty dismissive things, and he also... Uh, one of the one of the two references um, when Craig he, he did like a, a talk on like the ten worst objections to yeah. his argument and and he lists that one as one of um, I, I mean so I think maybe it's important to emphasize that um, this view called muriological nihilism it's I mean he's right that there's a sense in which it's a radical view but it's not a fringe view. This is a view that um, some very smart philosophers uh, defend and that a lot of people working in metaphysics take very seriously. Uh, and so I think we should take it seriously too. But I also think it's false. <laughs> and so, um, I mean, maybe, do you think the best way to approach this is just, we can maybe talk about some of the reasons to endorse nihilism and why I'm not convinced by them, and then maybe some of the reasons to reject nihilism? Yeah, no, I think that's a good way to, to move forward. Uh, I mean, one one thing that I, I did want to point out is that if, so someone that's raising this objection, I mean, usually when, when we raise certain objections, at least this this can happen, is that our objection has sort of underlying assumptions. Like we're, we're assuming something as part of, of our objection. So like we could assume that there's, uh, you know, a real world out there if we're, if we're objecting on, on some of the grounds. But there are, there are different assumptions is, is the point here. And, and muriological nihilism could be one of the assumptions behind this objection. But there's a further question, is muriological nihilism actually true? So you, you if you, you can go that route if you want to defend muriological nihilism. I think that's, like you said, it's a, it's a fruitful way to go. It's not necessarily like a fringe view. And so there can be some fruitful dialogue that can happen on that level. Um, but I suppose what, what I wanted to point out is that if you are raising this objection, then you probably need to be aware, at least at a surface level, of like of the dialectic. Like be aware of the reasons for and against this position and be ready to defend it if it comes to that, you know. So uh, just kind of be aware that like philosophy, there's there's all sorts of different positions and uh, you, you can't just like assert your own view as as if it's just the view and that there's no alternative or anything like that. Just uh, just be aware of that as we go into this next part where we're going to start to analyze whether or not mirological nihilism is actually the case. Yeah, good. Um, that That seems right to me. And relatedly, it's probably a good idea to be aware of like, what are the alternatives to muriological nihilism? Like, what are the range of options here? So actually, maybe I should say something briefly about that. Um, so Peter Van Inwagen is a really famous philosopher. He does some philosophy of religion, and so you sometimes see his name around in philosophy of religion circles on the internet. But he's actually best known in philosophy for his work in metaphysics. And one Sorry of to the cut you off. The, the 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 thing that I'm I I most I know him uh, most for is is actually the memes. So there's there's a, a few memes that are that are circulating uh, of him like kind of sitting back in a chair and like drinking a, a coffee and stuff. It's just it's kind of funny because the the meme is supposed to be like this guy he has such a reputation for being like one of the smartest philosopher, like Christian philosophers alive. He's just so, so intelligent. And so, uh, I don't know. It's just, it's funny. That, that's what I know most for. I actually have some of his books back here and his, uh, his problem of book evil is uh, his problem of evil book rather is a really, really good book. But, um, yeah, sorry, to, sorry to cut you off. Go, go ahead. Continue. Uh, yeah. So one thing that he's known, uh, really known for in um, philosophy is formulating this question that he called the special composition question. And uh, although he didn't put it exactly this way, somebody else phrased his question this way. Um, Under what conditions do some things compose a thing? 
All right. So, and then in his book, Van Inwagen says, you can also, it sometimes helps to think of it in practical terms. Like what would it take to get some things to compose a thing? What would you have to do to some things in order to make another thing that has those things as its parts? Okay. Um, and there are three kinds of answers to this. I'm going to paraphrase or actually probably pretty close to quote Ross Cameron here. He says something like this, like, you know, some people say, never, right? It's never true that some things compose a thing. Some people say always, it's always true that some things compose a thing. And some people say sometimes some things compose a thing and sometimes they don't. Okay. So those are on one way of slicing up the options. Those are the three options. But that third view, which is called restricted composition, uh, divides up into a bunch of different sub options because there's a lot of different ways to say, you know, that sometimes some things compose a thing and sometimes they don't. Like, well, well when, you know, under what conditions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of different versions of that view. Um, but there's only one version of the view that says always and only one version of the view that says never because, you know, those don't really leave a lot of wiggle room. <laughs> um, yeah, that's helpful. I mean, I, I, I want to guess, since you reject mirrorological nihilism, I want to guess that you take the third option. Yeah, I am the third option. Yeah, I endorse restricted composition. Um, so uh, the 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 view that says always some things always compose a thing that's called mereological universalism uh, or just universalism, um, and uh, that view is actually very popular. A lot of philosophers like that view, uh, but not me. <laughs> I don't like that. Yeah, view. I mean. I <laughs> Wouldn't that entail that like you could just pick out, you know, 10 different random objects in the world and then say that that, that those 10 objects compose another object, right? Yes. Uh, yes and, and that's, that's universally. Yep. So like a, a common example you'll hear is according to universalism, there is an object that is composed of my nose and the Eiffel Tower and nothing else. So it's this weird object that has a like a, a scattered location and these two parts that have like nothing to do with each other and are totally different kinds of things. Um, yeah. So mereological universalism has the consequence that there are a bunch of very bizarre objects. Um, mm. And then, and that is one of the reasons some people don't like it is because, wow, that seems pretty counterintuitive to think that there are all those things like that. Um, on the other hand, Mereological nihilism goes in the other direction and says there aren't even the kinds of normal things that we think there are, like people and hippos and trees and cars and whatnot, right? And that is pretty counterintuitive in its own way. And so that's a reason some people don't like nihilism. Um, but maybe, let me say some, maybe I could give like two examples of arguments for nihilism and then tell you why I'm not really persuaded by them. Um, sure. So th this is not exhaustive or anything, but a couple of examples. So one of the most important arguments for mereological nihilism is that it, um, it gets rid of a lot of problems. So in uh, material object metaphysics, there are a bunch of puzzles about like how objects relate to each other, which objects there are and are not. Um, like, so one really famous example involves a statue and a piece of clay or some, in some versions, it's like a piece of bronze or marble. And there's like this puzzle that kind of pressures one to accept the bizarre conclusion that you can have two objects in the same place at the same time. And I don't think it's really important for us to get into the details of that puzzle, but the point is just, there are a lot of really tricky puzzles about ordinary objects. And one way to solve all of those puzzles, uh, without, um, you know, just kind of with it at one stroke is to mm -hmm. just say, well, there really aren't any composite objects. None of the objects involved in the puzzles actually exist. Um, and so uh, that's one of the main motivations for mereological nihilism, right? It's got this puzzle dissolving power to it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, uh, yeah. Uh, well, uh, the, the puzzle that I was thinking of, and I can't remember the name. I know it starts with a, a, a TH, the ship of Theseus, what is yeah. it? Ship of Theseus, yes. Theseus. Yeah. Okay, I got it right. Um, yeah, that that's one that that comes to mind. I think I've asked my daughter 
about that one. I can't remember her response to it, but yeah, it's, it's another one of these puzzles where it's like, okay, yeah, how does that actually work? And, and if you just deny that, that there is no ship, you know, ships are, are yep. they're, they're, all you have are, are fundamental particles arranged ship wise. And so that then you, you sort of do away with the, the those puzzles. So yeah, I think that's uh that, that, would you say that that's like the, the primary point in its favor? Um, it's one of the primary points. It, it's hard to say if it's like the main one. Um, mm. It might be though. It is a popular one. <laughs> um, yeah, it's one of the big ones. I'll say that. Yeah, well, when I've th- yeah, that, that's that's one of the the reasons that sort of appealed to me as I've thought through these issues. I, I've by no means have done a deep dive into muriology, but uh, as I you know it comes across my my thinking every now and then, that is one of the things I think about is is that yeah, it would it would actually kind of solve these issues. But then I think on the other hand, and, and uh, you'll probably get to this eventually, there are other puzzles that come along with denying that there are just um, any composite objects. So we'll yes. maybe talk about that um, later. In fact, there's a really good paper by Bradley Rettler uh, where he actually argues that all or perhaps or at least most of the standard puzzles about ordinary objects can be reconstructed using only muriological symbols. And and so it turns out that uh, nihilism doesn't actually solve the problems after all, or at least doesn't solve them in a way that uh, is uniquely nihilist, that you couldn't you know, you do some other way. Uh, so if Brettler is right, it turns out that this, what seemed like at first maybe a really strong argument for nihilism uh, is not at all a strong argument for nihilism. Um, if he's right, it's it's kind of entirely undercut. But suppose he's not right about that. Suppose suppose he's wrong, and that as a matter of fact, we can still solve all these puzzles by becoming muriological nihilists. Well, I think there's still a serious problem here. Uh, some people will not agree with me about how serious it is, but I take intuitions extremely seriously and kind of like common sense views about the world extremely seriously, right? Um, and it seems to me like this is just complete, given that sort of methodology, this is just completely the wrong way to go about solving these puzzles. And it, you could compare it to this. There are a bunch of puzzles in ethics. There are problems about like what to do in various conceivable and sometimes actual moral dilemmas. Uh, what is the right thing to do in controversy situations that are ethically controversial and so on, right? Okay, here's a really simple way to solve all the puzzles in ethics. Just be a moral nihilist. Say there are there are no moral facts whatsoever, including relativistic moral facts, right? So not even moral relativism is true. There's just nothing. Moral morality is not a thing. It doesn't exist at all. Okay, I think, uh, and and actually, I think most philosophers w- would would agree with this. That's not a good way to solve the problems in ethics, even though it has that feature of being able to solve them all at one stroke. And to that extent, it's kind of attractive, right? Um, And it seems like the problem is just that it's too revisionary. Like it really seems like ethics is a real thing. There is such a thing as morality. And uh, the reason these puzzles weigh on us is because they are real problems and not something that we can just be like, oh, forget about that. Let's just say there's no morality at all. Um, so I kind of think well, that way about muriological nihilism. I'm like, well, all right, the price of solving the puzzles, if the price of solving the puzzles is to say, there aren't really any of the things like around me in my room right now that there seem to be, that's a pretty high price. Yeah, what I was going to say, you, you got to be a little bit careful here because the, the atheist that is, that is attracted toward muriological nihilism because it's going to solve all these problems, they're probably going to be uh, attracted to ethical nihilism or, or moral nihilism uh, for, for the same reasons. And so, yeah, there are still, I mean, the, the more philosophically informed atheists that I know, they, they lean or, or just full, full-blown full accept moral realism. But um, a, a lot of atheists online are, are moral nihilists, and and they're, they'll gladly accept that. And so um, we got to be careful about like using that as as the definitive reason against muriological nihilism. I know that that's not what you were saying at all. You were just saying that uh, you, you know you take intuition seriously, and so uh, these two yeah. cases. I mean, when we when we're trying to do good philosophy, it's it it is actually more uh, complicated and difficult. Yeah. Well, and I, I could perhaps I might be able to come up with a different example, like. I'm not as familiar with epistemology. Um, you know, that's definitely not my area. But I know there are at least some puzzles in epistemology. 
And you could get out of those puzzles if you just started denying that there's any such thing as knowledge or justification or belief, right? Or philosophy of mind, right? Like you can get out of problems about consciousness by being an eliminativist. But mm. like almost no one in philosophy is an eliminativist. Um, anyway, okay. So yeah, no, that's true. That that's good. Okay, I, uh, yeah, you you can apply. You can use the same kind of argument against well, in a lot of different areas, and you could just yeah. uh, become a nothingist, <laughs> a nihilist, yeah. a complete nihilist. If there's nothing, there's no puzzles either. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so that's one of the main motivations for um, for mereological nihilism. I'll mention one more. It's not the only other one. But, um, you know, you might be moved by considerations of parsimony. You might think, hey, look, if we eliminate ordinary objects and say there's just, uh, you know, myriological simples, um, we've got a lot fewer things in the world and we've mm -hmm. got a lot fewer kinds of things. Uh, because not only do we not have individual hippos like Fiona, for example, we also don't have any hippos, the whole kind hippo. We don't need that anymore. Right. So you get both what's called uh, ontological parsimony, getting rid of particular things and ideological parsimony, which is getting rid of kinds of things. Um, OK, so some people might be drawn to nihilism by considerations of parsimony. And here are two things that I think um, uh, are important challenges to that objection. One is that some people are drawn to the view that parsimony only matters or matters most when it comes to fundamental things and kinds of things. Um, but uh, it's not at all clear, I would say, that ordinary objects are uh, fundamental things and that ordinary object kinds are fundamental kinds. Um, now, I mean, we could perhaps argue about this, but suppose that only mereological simples are fundamental. Um, well, then you haven't made any kind of gain in parsimony uh, that matters anyway by eliminating all the non-fundamental objects that are made up out of them. Um, so depending on what you what kind of parsimony you think counts, this argument may not actually have any force. But even if you think that um, non-fundamental things count towards uh, a, a view's level of parsimony or whatever, um, I which I actually am inclined to think that they do, um, I, I'm sort of moved by this consideration. You know, parsimony is just one of the many features of a theory that has to be taken into account and balanced against its other pros and cons. Uh, and I think it's one of the weaker um, considerations. Uh, I don't think the way some people do that it only comes into play when all else is equal. But nevertheless, I think that it's it's a fairly easy, a very defeasible consideration. It's 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 only a weak kind of reason to accept or reject a view. And so, if there are good enough reasons to think that um, composite objects do exist, uh, it's going to be hard for considerations of parsimony to outweigh those. Um, so, anyway, that's some thoughts about parsimony. Yeah, yeah, parsimony. I think. I mean. My views on parsimony, more generally, is that I, I'm kind of aligned with Swinburne and that I apply principles of parsimony when we have two competing views that are roughly on par with each other. And then parsimony simplicity can help kind of break the tie. But even then, yeah. it's like, how much weight do we want to give to simplicity? Because sometimes complicated theories or hypotheses are the real, like, that's the one that is true. So... I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I, uh, as of late have been less impressed with, uh, these sorts of parsimony concerns, but that's just like a personal anecdote that yeah. it's not really like well, an argument at all. If you actually, if you take the view of parsimony that you just suggested, which is like the tiebreaker view, like it doesn't really matter unless the two theories are otherwise tied, then I think it's going to be even harder to defend nihilism by appealing to parsimony because I think they're not even close to tied. Um, the, the nihilism versus views, or well, let's just say nihilism versus the negation of nihilism, um, yeah. which will bring me to reasons to reject nihilism, uh, if, if you're ready for those. <laughs> yeah, let's go ahead and move into to some reasons against nihilism. I think that'd be a cool. good All right. place. So 
Again, I'll just talk about maybe a couple of representative ones instead of trying to do everything. But one is, is just an appeal to intuitions. Um, so again, philosophers disagree about how important intuitions are and so forth. But I think uh, a lot of philosophers do take intuition seriously to some extent. And there are, I think, some good reasons to take intuition seriously to some extent. Um, and it turns out we do see a, a lot of people at any rate do seem to have intuitions that suggest that sometimes some things compose other things. So, um, for example, um, consider, uh, consider like a case where I take a bunch of Lego bricks and I, you know, snap them together and construct like a little Lego house or something. I think that, you know, I have the intuition that there is a thing here that is now made out of those Lego bricks, that they compose something. There's not just the bricks there. There's also the house-shaped thing that's made of the bricks. And it helps, I think, to contrast this with cases where we don't have the same intuition. So, for example, a case from Peter Van Inwagen, what if, um, suppose you and I shook hands and I had like some really super sticky glue on my hand. And when we shook hands, our hands got stuck together. Uh, my intuition and Van Inwagen's intuition is we don't compose anything. There's nothing there that's shaped like two people shaking hands. There's just two separate objects. And if there was no glue and we were just gripping hands, even, even more, it seems to me, yeah, that we don't compose anything while we're shaking hands, much less while we're not shaking hands, right? And so there are cases where it kind of seems like, yeah, we put things together in a certain way. Like, you know, if I glue wood together, a couple boards together, now I think, okay, I've made some bigger object out of these two boards. If I glue two people's hands together, I don't think I've made a bigger object. Um, so, I, you know, maybe uh, you'll have those intuitions, maybe you won't. But insofar as people have those intuitions, I take that to be at least a defeasible reason to think, there are some composite objects in the world. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm 100% on board with that. Uh, that that's one of the reasons why I I cannot embrace muriological nihilism. There, are, I mean, there there are other versions of nihilism, um, and I don't even know if you'd want to necessarily call it nihilism. That there are some Christian philosopher friends of mine who uh, take a view, and, and maybe there's may, you, you'll probably know the the correct like name for this, but uh, the view that basically there are. Um, like fundamental particles, but then also people. Yeah. So um, Van Inwagen's view is sometimes called organicism. And his view is there are simples, muriological simples, uh, and there are organisms, but there's nothing else. So there's no artifacts or at least inorganic artifacts um, uh, and no like rocks and mountains and stuff like that, right? That's just simples arranged in various ways. But yeah, there are people and other organisms as well. And then Trenton Marix has a similar view where he thinks there are people and and generally like conscious things, but hmm. then other than that, it's just simples. Um, those, yeah. So those are not versions. You see, of see, I'm, I'm Sorry, way more attracted to I'm way more attracted to something like that. Like that makes a lot more sense. But even then, like in a biological organism, I feel like would run into the same kind of like issues like intuitively that i would come up against when i'm thinking of like where like what if i'm trying to figure out does does do mountains exist then i would run up against something like where okay where if this mountain does exist where does it start where does it end because it seems yeah, like it's yeah. going to be kind of fuzzy like a, it, yeah. you know what what um piece of uh, rock are you going to you know specify as like the the end point of this uh this mountain yeah, yeah. and i think that we we'd run into some very similar issues when it comes to um, organisms. So like the little particles and cells, you know, cells will die off and you'll get new cells. And, uh, there's, I forget the the name of it, but like, if you were to replace all of your cells, like th there's a bunch of different, like, I don't know, tricky and weird things like, um, with, with respect to organisms, I'm no biologist by any means, but I, I do know that like cells can replace themselves. And so, sure. you know, it's, it's just very Strange. I think the same kind of issues that I would have with like, uh, like I was saying with mountains and the existence of, uh, of like ordinary objects like that, non-bio or non-organic uh, life, I would still, I think probably have the same similar kinds of issues when it came to organic life, but maybe those could be resolved if I study yeah, yeah. a little bit deeper. 
No, and it's true that the, the problem about vagueness is uh, one of the main arguments against restricted composition. But it's not by itself an argument for nihilism, because you can also get around it by being a universalist and just saying, oh, well, mm -hmm. for any things, for any simples, there's a thing that they compose. And then you can just make the vagueness something in our language, like we just aren't precise enough in our language when we talk about mountains to have picked out exactly one of the mountain-shaped things, the one that ends right here instead of like an inch farther. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not by itself an argument for nihilism, but it is an argument against restricted composition. Um, and it's an interesting one and an influential one that uh, should again be taken seriously. Um, well, so, so you talked about intuition. Yeah, you talked about intuition. Yeah. That's like a that's a big reason in, uh, against muriological nihilism. So what are yeah. what are some others? So another one is perception. Um, I, so this is you know this is controversial as well. I mean, all of this is controversial. But some people think that we actually perceive that there are composite objects. Like that, I I I'm not just this view says I'm not just seeing like patches of color arranged in a certain way when I look around me. I'm actually seeing uh, like the, oh, okay, these properties are co-instantiated by something and not those. Uh, you know, that there's an object filling this space here, but not this one. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, that, you know, it's hard to argue for this, but what I recommend that people do is just to kind of reflect on their own perceptual experience. Just sort of sit back and think about this. Look around and think like, does it seem like the world is just sort of automatically presented to you as being divided up into certain objects and not others, like books and tables and so on, but not necessarily like the left two thirds of a table and not like the composite of the table on this side of the room and the ceiling fan on the ceiling, you know? I, anyway, so I actually think that there is perceptual justification for believing that there are ordinary objects. And that's highly significant because perceptual um, experience is normally taken to be a really important source of knowledge and a really important source of justification for our beliefs. And so if you're trying to say that like our perceptual uh, experience of the world is like systematically wrong about like what objects there are, right? That's, that's pushing towards uh, a radical skeptical hypothesis, right? It's not as bad as brain in a vat kind of stuff, but it is really, really revisionary uh, in a certain sense. Uh, and so I think mm. that's an extremely powerful reason to reject or at least resist muriological nihilism. Certainly nothing that parsimony is going to be able to defeat in my view. One of the things I think that would maybe help me and the audience to help better understand the second reason from perception is mm -hmm. to, uh, can you distinguish between intuition and perception? Yeah. So an intuition, at least in the, in the sense that I mean, is um, like, uh, it's, it's more a priori, right? Like if you just like imagine in your head, two people shaking hands and getting stuck together, and then you have this sense either that they do compose something or that they don't, um, that would be an intuition. Um, it's, it's coming, it's not coming through your sense faculties, like your eyes or your ears or whatever. But um, when we're talking about perception, uh, what I'm thinking of at least primarily is like the five senses and what they tell us about the world, right? It's because I can see with my eyes that I, you know, see that there's a laptop in front of me, there's a desk in front of me and so forth, right? And what I'm suggesting mm -hmm. and, and what other people have suggested is we're not merely seeing arrangements of like color and shape that we interpret as, oh, okay, let's say that this part of that image that I'm getting is corresponds to an object and this one doesn't. I don't think we do that. It seems to me that we're just sort of presented with this one is an object here and this one here, right? And we could like on reflection deny that, but we wouldn't thereby cease being presented with the mm -hmm. world as being a certain way. We would just be saying, oh, well, we're being misled by the way the world is presented to us. I don't know if that helps. It does. It does. And um, the, I guess one of the objections that sort of came to mind is like, well, we could see it maybe as some sort of like evolutionary debunking argument. Like we can see why evolution would select for beings who have this sort of perceptual faculty, uh, even though that there aren't these actual objects out in the world. So uh, what are your thoughts on that sort of objection yeah. to 
To yeah, good. So this is uh, another influential objection to at least certain versions of restricted composition um, that says like, you know, it, aren't our beliefs about uh, what kinds of things compose and what don't, what objects there are and what there aren't, aren't those just shaped by like cultural factors or evolutionary factors, which have nothing to do with the actual truth of those beliefs? Um, yeah, okay. So a uh, couple of thoughts about this. I mean, one version of the problem, well, all right, let me j actually, I'll just focus on that version of the problem. So, so that version of the problem says, hey, look, uh, you know, it's just a, an accident that we have the beliefs that we do about what sorts of things there are and, and aren't. So some people say about this version of the problem that like, look, it actually thinking in terms of evolution, it would have been adaptive for us to be able to kind of like, uh, organize our environment, you know, predict how objects are going to behave and so on and so forth. Um, and so it's not so crazy to think that maybe we would have evolved uh, correct beliefs about what objects there are. Um, I think some people maybe make that move. There's actually an even better move, though, in my view, and that's this. Um, it does seem adaptive that uh, we, we would be capable of grasping uh, a priori truths, uh, that is, truths that are not based um, in experience. Uh, and so one reason why this is useful is that that's what enables, enables us to reason. Uh, it's what, what enables us to do, um, you know, like uh, math and science, physics, right? All that kinds of stuff, right? And I think, you know, the standard view about why is it that we're able to do physics is not because evolution selected for the ability to do physics. It's because evolution selected for like us just being able to to, to reason and to make observations about the world and so forth, right? But then as a side effect of having those mental capacities, we can also do physics. And so one way to deal with the debunking objection against uh, beliefs about ordinary objects is to say, well, look, um, it was useful for us to have like access to the a priori realm, to be able to grasp necessary truths, including arguably truths about composition, like when do some things compose other things. And because that, well, sorry, it was, it was uh, adaptive for us to um, be able to have access to necessary truths. And because that was adaptive, as a side effect, we do have access to necessary truths about composition, even if that itself wasn't evolutionarily useful. And so now we have this kind of ability, just like we have the ability to do physics, that's sort of a, a happy accident of evolution. Um, I don't know if that made sense. Did I explain that clearly enough? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think so. Um, the term that came to mind that I've seen in uh, when you're when you study various evolutionary debunking arguments when it comes to like epistemology, uh, there's a word that gets used: spandrel, evolutionary spandrel. I yeah. think that's the what you were thinking of, like. Uh, yeah, so, and I guess the way the story I just told works better as a story about our intuitions and it may be not so much about our perceptions. Maybe there's a perceptual version of it that could be told as well. Um, but yeah, it's, that's the idea is like, well, our capacity to, to um, do lots of, of things that we like, even to do philosophy is a spandrel, right? We didn't mm -hmm. evolve to do philosophy because that was helping us survive, you know, on the African savanna. We evolved to be able to think because that helped us survive. And once we had that ability, we were able, fortunately, to use it to do other stuff, including mm -hmm. perhaps figuring out when some things compose another thing. So, yeah, that's the I think, story. I think one of the best responses to the evolutionary debunking argument, like, well, it, it, any particular one that you want to raise with respect to any particular problem. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm still a fan of the evolutionary argument against naturalism. I think that it's actually really difficult. Like if you want to apply the the reasoning consistently, if you want to use a sort of evolutionary story to debunk some knowledge that you think you've got, um, I think it's going to be really difficult to draw the line. Like planting is, is very famous about pointing this out. Like naturalists, if you just take the conjunction of naturalism and evolution, then it just seems like evolution doesn't necessarily pick for true beliefs necessarily it picks for uh survival and so you could have a whole range of different beliefs that would nevertheless still be uh confer fitness and and survivability and so i think what the the challenge is going to be is to 
draw the line like where where do you actually draw the line in these evolutionary debunking arguments and so if you think that they work in this one case then why don't they work when it comes to the more general case of of your your reasoning capacities more yeah. generally about you know your, your beliefs about uh these these sort of grand metaphysical views like belief in naturalism where are you going to draw that line because you don't yeah. want to deny that because then you're going to you're going to wind up in some pretty uh, scary territory. So I, I think that's that's probably for me um, one of the reasons why I would never be able to endorse something like that. Yeah, good. I actually also like that kind of response because you're right. Like for almost everything in philosophy, there is a debunking argument about like that domain of, yes. of like what philosophy talks about, right? And so there is this problem about like, okay, if you're going to rely on a debunking argument in this area, uh, is there any good reason for you not to thereby like just say, okay, everything in philosophy is debunked, um, which of course some people might think, but I, you know, sure. I take it that's not usually, you know, what people are trying to say, right? Because there's debunking arguments about ethics. There's debunking arguments about math. There's a debunking arguments about metaphysics, right? Just, you know, all over the place. So yeah. I yeah. Think okay. Excellent. I'm glad that we're, uh, we're on the same page about that. Yeah. I mean, maybe we should just do a, a show on debunking arguments. Maybe invite uh, Thomas Bogardus on. He's got an interesting paper on, on that. He's got one that yeah. I forget the name of the t the uh, the title of the paper, and he's moved on to other projects since then. But it's like the the only and some something like that, like the the only evolutionary argument that every naturalist should should care about. Something along those yeah, lines. Yeah, It'd be fun to, to do a show yeah. on that. Um, yeah. Well, I, I want to try to to draw. I mean, we're basically out of time here, but I, I kind of wanted to to draw everything back to the the topic for today, which is this sort of mereological nihilism objection to. And again, I think it was also really uh, helpful when you sort of laid out, you explained what the Kalam cosmological argument was, but then you said for this particular causal principle, premise one of the cosmological or the Kalam cosmological argument, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Dr. William Lane Craig, the most famous defender of this argument, he has three different defenses of that premise, and this objection targets one defense of that premise. So even if it's successful, it doesn't therefore refute his other two arguments or show that the causal principle is false or anything like that. All it would do is undercut one particular support that is offered for the causal principle being true. So I think it's helpful to kind of situate, like, help us, you know, to see exactly what's at stake here, right? What, what, even if this objection is successful, what does that mean? And it means basically that instead of three supports, you've only got two. And then what we did uh, for, for the bulk of the show was we looked at reasons for and against mirological nihilism. And I say this a lot, and I'll, I'll say it again, we're, in these shows, these these 45-minute, hour, hour-and-a-half shows, we're really only able to scratch the surface. You know, th these shows, hopefully what they do is get you excited about starting to read the literature and, and delve deeper into these issues yourself. But we hope to expose, you know, some of the, the good philosophy that's going on behind the scenes that many people just aren't super familiar with or aware of. But hopefully that kind of situates things and what we've done in this show so far. But... Justin, is there anything that you would like to uh, to make sure that you say before we kind of close out the show or wrap it up? Yeah, sure. Let me add one thing. So um, I I was thinking about this, you know, last couple of days leading up to this, and it seems to me there might actually be an easy way to reframe the Kalam to just get around this objection and thereby restore, even if you think it works, restore that third line of argument for the the causal principle. Um, why not just say every event that begins to occur has a cause? Because even if you think that when you get some simples arranged chair-wise, no new object comes into existence that's the chair composed of those simples, there is a new event that starts happening, the event of those simples being arranged chair-wise. Now, uh, and so it's this particular objection at any rate wouldn't be a problem for that version of the causal principle. Now, I, I think that, I might not be remembering this correctly, but I think that the reason Craig doesn't go this route is that he, he wants to say, no, there are some uncaused events like uh, indeterministic, like quantum sort of stuff, right? But 
actually, I think the better view, and also I think the more um, widespread view, is that no, uh, even indeterministic events of that sort are caused. They're just not caused deterministically. Their causes are probabilistic. It's like, all right, if this cause is in place, then there's, say, a 50% chance that a particle is going to decay or whatever, right? Um, and if it does, it was caused by uh, that condition being in place. It just wasn't causally determined by that condition being in place. Um, and so actually, I think that a principle like that might be um, pretty defensible, though, again, I've only you know just started thinking about it. So maybe there's some yeah. precise objection. <laughs> I think, uh, well, first of all, I, I like that variation of the, the Kalam. I think that that, that has uh, potential. But I was thinking more like, what would what would Dr. William Lane Craig say about this? And, and why does he sort of take the position that he does? And something that I've just kind of learned about him is that he is not afraid to, like, dig his heels in and just defend a position. Like, he, uh -huh. when it comes to, like, some people have said to him... You know, why don't you defend a version of the Kalam cosmological argument that is compatible with both A theory and B theory of time? And he's just like, I think A theory is true, so I'm just going to continue defending the Kalam like the way that I do it, you know? And so I, I think that he, he would probably take a similar position with respect to this and just be like, you know, dig his heels in, be like, mere logical nihilism is false, so this objection is, is you know, kind of like what kind of like what you said, his uh, his general attitude was in his conversation with Alex O'Connor was a little bit dismissive, not necessarily in like a bad sense, but it was just like, you know, incredulity kind of like, I'm not super, you know, I on mean, board with that, that view. Right. Yeah. Just, it was, I think a bit dismissive of muriological nihilism, but he wasn't like dismissive of Alex. Right. They had a really great conversation. Uh, it seemed to me. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So I think, I think he would probably just dig his heels in and, which is fine, you know, to each his own. Everyone has their own different way of, of addressing things. But yeah, I mean, this is this kind of reminds me of like the Josh Rasmussen style. Like, just find a way to still make the argument, yeah. granting the objection, you know, and say like, well, you know, maybe there's still another pathway. And maybe we can come kind of come to agreement on this, but then yet find another way that we can still make progress and move forward. So I'm, I'm always a fan of that approach too. But um, yeah, we'll go, we'll go ahead and wrap up things. Um, I do want to let the audience know, like, let me know what you think about shows like this. This was a very specific show on a very specific topic. So if you like to see this type of content, let me know in the comments. If you'd like to see more where we're kind of taking a closer look at specific objection to specific objections to specific arguments, we'd love to, uh, or I would love to, to cover more topics like this. So just let me know what you think. Uh, Justin, thanks for coming back on. This has been awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our, uh, the, we have some projects in the works that, uh, we haven't really made public yet, but I'm, I'm really excited about the, 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 our, our future projects that we'll be working on together. And, and I'll be looking more for, uh, s some more shows that we can, uh, do together. So I, I always love having you on. I love the way that you explain things. So Justin, awesome. Thanks for coming on. I'll see you guys in the next Capturing Christianity video. I'll actually be posting a video, um, within the hour. So if you're watching this live, then you guys will, uh, be greeted with uh, a new video very, very soon. So for everyone else, see you guys later. See you next time.